Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. As we continue to make our way through this gospel. Luke 12. We'll look this morning at verses 49 down to 59, the last part of the chapter. This morning I want to tell you about a Jesus who may not be so familiar to you. You see, our contemporary view of Jesus is actually rather distorted. Dr. Daryl Bach, who's uh, probably one of the foremost experts on the Gospel of Luke, describes this distortion in these ways. He says, our culture tends to see Jesus as a man who did not engage in confrontation or talk about judgment. He came as the ultimate peacemaker who sought peace at any cost. He never challenged anyone other than to call for love and tolerance. As a teacher of wisdom and a teller of parables, Jesus did not force people into hard choices. That's what we tend to think. We especially reinforce this misconception of Jesus around Christmas time. I mean, how sweet is a helpless baby in a manger? And didn't he come to be the Prince of Peace? And didn't the angels announce his coming by saying, uh, peace on earth and goodwill to men? That's the Jesus we're familiar with. Oh, but this morning in this text, we see quite another side of Jesus. Let me read it. Luke 12, 49. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five and one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see the cloud, crowd, when you see the cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when you see the south wind, when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. In these uh, verses, I think we learn three main things. At least I have three points we're going to hang this on. The first is this. Right out of the beginning of our text, Jesus came to bring fire upon the earth. Jesus came to bring fire on the earth. Los Angeles area this week, Californians are seeing how destructive fire can be. So what could Jesus be saying when he says he came to bring fire on the earth? 
Well, there are some different possibilities, and people disagree a bit on what he's saying. The Holy Spirit's coming was promised, sometimes in terms of uh, fire coming. And sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire appeared over the disciples. But that really doesn't fit this context, which has been talking about what's coming at the end, nor is it the most common meaning of fire coming on the earth as we find it in the Bible. More likely, this promise of Jesus bringing fire is Jesus talking about judgment coming. That's how the Old Testament prophets spoke of judgment. Listen to what Isaiah says. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger and with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For, the fire, for with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Indeed, this is the way that John the Baptist announced Jesus coming, as he warned of Jesus bringing judgment. He said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In fact, the apostles throughout the New Testament speak in the same kind of terms. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. We may not like to talk about this truth. We may just ignore it as if it's not there. But Jesus came to bring fire on the earth. Judgment. And actually, we long for judgment. At the very same time, we hate the thought. You have only to read the news to have your heart stirred with the desire for judgment. Pakistani Christians being murdered and having their churches burned because of a false rumor that somebody tore pages out of a Quran. Children in Somalia kidnapped to become sex slaves of warlords or boy soldiers to fight against their own people. Helpless widows, orphans, minorities, working people, who cannot get their grievances heard because nobody cares. And deep within us there arises a rage, a desire that the guilty be brought to justice, that things on earth be set right. No wonder Jesus says in verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. He too had had enough of the wickedness and injustice, the oppression and brutality, the bloody violence and the vile perversions of mankind. Oh, you see, we could easily get ramped up in a rage of righteous indignation until we think just a little bit and then have to wonder what about our own guilt? 
if the scripture is right, that there's none righteous, no, not even one, we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of judgment. If Jesus is right that God holds us accountable for every loose word, for every lustful look, for every impure motive, then Jesus' announcement, I have come to bring fire upon the earth, is rather frightening. Oh, but that's not all Jesus said here. Tim Keller in preaching on this said, this passage is nothing but lightning and blood. But at the center, there's this most wonderful thing. Listen as Jesus continues in verse 50. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. And here's another metaphor to be unpacked. A baptism to undergo. What's that about? Well, Jesus speaks the same way in another place. In Mark chapter 10, two of the disciples, John and James, come to Jesus. And they ask that when his kingdom comes, they might have the two most prominent places at the right hand and the left hand of his throne. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You're not prepared to drink the cup I have to drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I must undergo. Now we know from the Old Testament that the cup that Jesus is talking about is the bitter cup of the wrath of God that he pours out on his enemies. So this baptism which Jesus was to undergo seems to be another way of saying the same thing. Jesus is talking about his coming death on the cross. Remember the context of Luke here. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. In other words, in this passage, Jesus says, I have come to bring the fire of judgment upon the earth, and I wish it had happened already. But first, I must myself be plunged into that fire of God's wrath. Jesus is distressed about that. was probably distressed his whole life about that as he saw it coming. We know he was distressed as he contemplated it in the Garden of Gethsemane. There as the sinless Son of God saw the agony of death coming. Not primarily the pain and suffering of the crucifixion, great as that was. But the fire of God's wrath in which he was about to be baptized, that was about to consume him, when he saw it coming... He sweat drops of blood. Why should he endure such a baptism? Why should he drink such a bitter cup? Why should he be plunged into the fire of judgment? He had done no wrong. The Father was perfectly pleased with him. In fact, God had announced it in just so many words from heaven on several occasions. But Jesus knew there was no other way that anyone might escape the judgment. He could have said no, and the fire of judgment which he will cast on the earth 
would have consumed every last person. But if he wanted to show mercy to those he had chosen, he would have to endure the judgment himself to spare them. Oh, but there are none of his creatures worthy of such a sacrifice. People don't even care about him. The very ones he was willing to forgive hung him on a cross. Even we who are the recipients of such unfathomable love, we take it in stride as if it's our right to be saved. There are people we hear such drivel about Jesus. Jesus makes me happy. Jesus gives me stuff. Jesus understands how important it is that I feel good about myself. No. No. This is not about me. This misses the point. Jesus came to bring fire upon the earth. But in anguish of soul, out of pure mercy and grace, which we could never repay, he walked into the furnace of God's wrath that we might be spared. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me, who cost his pain? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Oh, but Jesus has more surprises for us here, which brings us to our second point. Jesus came... To divide us. Jesus came to divide us. Look at verse 51 again. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. But division. Ah, here we go again. This is not the Jesus we normally hear about. Doesn't Jesus just want everyone to get along? Jesus didn't go about causing trouble and division between people, did he? That's exactly what happened. Unlike what we might think, Jesus was not a chameleon who just kind of conformed to everyone's expectation to make everyone happy. Everywhere he went, his teaching and his miracles and his claims about himself forced the division between people. When he healed and cast out demons, people either believed that he did great wonders and praised God for him, or they rejected him as an instrument of Satan. When he spoke of his relationship to his father and his kingdom, people either acknowledged his lordship and followed him, or they huddled together to plot to kill him. Jesus divided. But nothing has brought division between people like the gospel of his death and resurrection. For some, this is the answer to our guilt, our sin. 
This is a way of reconciliation to God. This is our hope for new life. This is nothing less than eternal salvation. But for others, why to accept this gospel would be an admission that all my righteous efforts are somehow not enough. It would be a denial of the efficacy of my great and deep, long religious tradition. It would be a de facto admission that there is a God who will judge and that I'm undeserving of anything but judgment and condemnation. And so, in self-righteous rage, some like Saul of Tarsus did for a while, would rather destroy Christ and destroy everyone who names his name than to humbly accept his grace. Jesus profoundly divides us. That's not ancient history, dear folks. This is the news of today. All around the world, those who confess allegiance to Christ are marginalized and suffer for it. I mentioned Pakistan and Somalia, but there are many more such incidents. On July 26, 12 Christians killed and three pastors beheaded in Nigeria by Islamic extremists. On August 8, two Christian women hauled into an Iranian court and demanded that they renounce their faith in Christ. On August 20th, believers evicted from their church in Belarus by the government oppression. On August 23rd, a church in Uzbekistan raided by police, arresting worshipers, confiscating their literature. Indeed, even this last week here in the U.S., a 17-year-old high school student fleeing from Ohio to Florida as far as she had money to buy a bus ticket to avoid being murdered in an honor killing because of her conversion to Christianity. Jesus has brought a deadly division. But you see, in a sense, it doesn't really matter to us. If we, like the Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the furnace of human judgment, the Son of Man has already been there. And in the judgment that really matters, the fires of the wrath of God, we who are in Jesus will not be burned or even smell of smoke. But make no mistake, he does divide. My favorite commentator on Luke, Fred Craddock, put it this way. Jesus is the crisis of the world. Crisis does not mean emergency, but that moment or occasion of truth and decision about life. An adequate image is that of the gable of house. Two raindrops strike the gable and at that moment could conclude with there being oceans apart. To be placed in the situation of decision is critical 
For to turn toward one person or goal or value is to turn away from all others. According to these sayings, God is so acting toward the world in Jesus of Nazareth that a crisis is created. That is to say, Jesus is making a difference even within families. Peace in the sense of status quo is forever disrupted. Which brings us to our last point. Get right with God now. Get right with God now. Life is full of urgent demands. So many things that have to be done right now. In fact, we're so driven that we acknowledge the tyranny of the urgent. The fact that the urgent sometimes crowds out things that are more important. But there's seldom anything about the Christian faith that seems urgent, is there? I mean, Jesus is often treated like an old pet. He's always there, seldom demands much. Happy if we can give him a couple of moments of attention, throw the ball for him a couple of times, when we have the time. No, not the Jesus of this passage, folks. He speaks with urgency. This Jesus calls us to be reconciled to God right now. To make the point, Jesus uses two word pictures, two analogies from everyday life. The first is this. Jesus talks about weather forecasting. In those days and in that area, forecasting was rather simple, frankly. When the clouds formed up over the Mediterranean to the west, you could expect rain. Wind started to blow in from the desert to the south, it was going to be a scorcher. So just like today, people learn to take note of changes in the sky and to be prepared for the weather that was coming. You hypocrites, Jesus said. You hypocrites. You know how to pay attention to the changes in the weather and get ready. But when the Messiah shows up, doing signs and wonders, when the blind are made to see and the lame are made to walk and the demon-possessed are delivered, somehow you can't figure out that this is the day of God's visitation. You merrily go along as if nothing really is happening, as if no response is required of you, as if there's no urgency whatsoever. You need to get right with God now before the storm of judgment comes. And then secondly, Jesus talks about a legal case which was common in that day. Back then, debtor's prison was a terrible reality. There were no bankruptcy laws to protect people who got deep into debt. And so if uh, that was you, you could be hauled into court by your creditors and imprisoned. Once that happened, you would not be released until you had paid your debt in full, even though in prison you couldn't work to pay your debt. So says Jesus, suppose you're in that 
trouble. You're being hauled into court for debts that you owe but cannot pay. What should you do? Should you listen to your friends? Tell me there's nothing to worry about. Everybody has lots of debt. Should you stiffen your proud neck and say, I'm going to fight this even though I admit I owe? Jesus says, don't you understand the urgency of the moment? Don't let this go to trial. Once the judge passes judgment, your fate is sealed. You're helpless. Right now, you need to run. You need to go cut a deal with your adversary. You need to plea bargain. You need to settle out of court. You need to find some way to be reconciled to him. Don't just sit there till your fate is sealed by the judge. In the same way, Jesus is saying, you need to get right with God right now before judgment day seals your fate forever. Jesus has come to reconcile you to God. Apostle Peter warns that in the last days people would scoff because Jesus' coming had been delayed for so long. They would assume, well, he's not really coming, or certainly not anytime soon. But Peter explains what's really happening. Let me read you what he says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Friend, could it be that the Lord has delayed his judgment just to give you this opportunity to be reconciled to him? To turn away from your self-help religion? To abandon your cherished sin and trust Jesus for forgiveness and new life? You need to get right with God now observing many of the Christians we encounter today we might wonder why do they seem so unconcerned about the blatant sin in their lives why do they seem to take so lightly matters of faith and worship? Why do they seem indistinguishable from the world in the way they think and the things they do? Why is there no sense of urgency about their faith? Well, perhaps it's because they don't really know the Jesus of this passage. Jesus who came to bring fire on the earth. Jesus who willingly was immersed in that judgment fire that we might be saved. Jesus who makes a difference between his followers and the rest of the world. Jesus who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
Jesus came to bring fire on the earth, judgment which he first endured in our place. Jesus came to divide us even before judgment day. We are either with him or we are against him. There is no neutral ground. So today with the utmost urgency, he calls us to be reconciled to God while there's time. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have too often created you after our own imaginations and made you what we want you to be. And we've underlined all those wonderful promises in your word that uh, speak comfort and sweetness to our souls. And we probably didn't underline this passage that talks about judgment and urgency and division. But when we look at it, Lord, we see why the Christianity that we so often see around us and perhaps practice ourselves is so shallow and powerless and meaningless. Because we follow Christ of our imagination, not the real Jesus. So change our thinking. Give us a heart to meditate on these things. Allow this seed of your word to be planted deep in our heart and to grow until it changes us. We ask in the Savior's name. Amen.